Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From snowy Arden Hills, Minnesota, it's Election Shock Therapy. Jingle Bells edition. <laughs> <laughs> we're back and we're snowy. It's we snowy. Are. It's very it's pretty. To look um, a lot like it's prettier now that I'm inside, not out right. in it. It's treacherous. There used to be a window it's, there we could have looked out of to see the snow falling. But now yep. we just see the grave we could have for a new right. one to be installed. <laughs> we would then see people on a treadmill. <laughs> well, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> that's what's on the inside of that wall. Oh, yeah. Anyway, that's true. Uh, we're here in the writing <laughs> center, which if you have no spatial understanding of Bethel University, this is a silly conversation. Um, I'm Chris Moore. I'm Andy Bramson. I'm Matt Kukum. And I'm Sam Mulberry. And we're here to talk about a couple of the things that have been happening in uh, national, international politics, and to give you your update on some elections. This is Election Shock Therapy. We want to talk a little bit about some elections today. So, uh, gentlemen, should we start domestically or internationally? Oh, Perhaps internationally, because that's the most immediate election, right? All right. It is very immediate. All right. So, uh, get your tea, get your crumpets. Yeah. It's time for a British election. Yes. Uh, Professor Bramson, uh, when do the Brits have elections for prime minister? So they are holding election on Thursday, and technically mm-hmm. it's actually not for prime minister. It's actually oh, for parliament. Um, so they are we electing 650 um, seats to the British parliament, which is mm-hmm. all, all the 650 seats to the House of Commons. Um, and whoever, whichever party gets a majority, that party's leader would then get to lead um, the, the government, and so it would be prime minister. Um, right now it looks like the Conservative Party, which has held power since 2010 more or less, um, is likely to return to power, um, but it matters how they'll do that. I mean, so I think there's a couple possibilities it looks like. One is they could win, win an outright majority, in which case they could govern much more easily. They might be able to actually manage Brexit finally, mm-hmm. um, which they've been trying and failing to do for the last now three and a half years. Um, or they could end up in the situation they're in right now, and we're more or less in from 2010 to 2015, which is that they have the most seats but not a majority. And so then they have to rely on other parties um, to try to govern. So recently that's been the Democratic Unionists of mm-hmm. Northern Ireland. Um, in 2010 to 2015, that was the Liberal Democratic Party. Um, and that would be tricky because that's exactly the kind of situation they have now and they've obviously been failing to to get things done. So they're hoping that they have a majority. What looks to be pretty clearly impossible is that the Labor Party, the other major party, would gain a majority. It doesn't look like there's any real path um, to to that happening. So, so that's what we're looking at and we should hopefully know something um, Thursday evening and anybody who listens to this podcast is invited to our party. Um, we're Ooh. actually going to get together, some of us, and watch at least parts of that um, up in um, our space on the fourth floor of the CC. So once again, a Bethel Geographic Spatial. Mm-hmm. CC 429. 429, yes, right. CC 429. So you join us on Thursday starting at 4 o'clock. We should start to see some election returns coming at that yep. point. Yep. CC 429. Um, we'll have some British-themed snacks. Yep. Um, come join us, and we'll watch. Uh, we'll, we'll watch the makeup of Parliament. But it'll be nerdy. Uh, Andy, you said that it, you think it's likely that conservatives hold on to the largest number of yes. seats, the plurality yes. of seats in Parliament, um, unless polling is wildly wrong. So, is, is polling telling us that the conservatives are likely to gain seats in this election or hold yes. steady? So, it, it looks like the most likely scenario right now is they probably do get a majority. Um, they're not 
far from a majority right now. So it looks like they are likely to pick up some seats um, and to get a majority and that labor is likely to lose some seats. Um, and then there's a number of third parties, um, some of them regional parties, some of them like the Liberal Democrats or national third parties. Um, and there's kind of a mixed bag of what's happening there. But um, that looks like the most likely is that they will actually mm -hmm. gain seats and get get back to a majority, not a not a huge majority probably, um, but a majority. And, but the problem is I think the polling is tricky because we're, you're not just making a national poll um, and trying to figure out, you know, sort of how that will distribute. You're trying to do 650 separate ones. Right. right. And so that's what gets really tricky. So the, the most recent thing I looked at said, you know, there's probably still 80 to 90 seats that are really not all that clear. And so how those go kind of determines, is this a super majority? Is it a very narrow majority? Or is it, once again, a parliament where no party has a majority? So this this shows my ignorance of everything that we're talking about here. How many seats are there? 650 seats in the House of Commons. And how are those bro are those broken up regionally? They're, I mean, it's kind of like the U.S. House of Representatives, right? Okay. They're basically supposed how, to be by population. But Britain's not that big. Like, those are pretty small little pockets, right? But, I mean, population, you know, it's not that big geographically. Sure. But population-wise, it's pretty. Right. But think about, large. like, our Congress doesn't have no, 600. No, I mean, like, no, so right. you're slicing pretty – you yeah. end up slicing pretty yeah. thin. Yeah. yeah. They're not representing nearly as many people as, Interesting. as our representatives. Well, are, does, that, sure. does that make running an election for, for parliament, like, more interesting? Because you could be pretty niche in terms of you this yeah, particular yeah. area, things like that. Does that lend itself then to – third parties more because yes okay. yeah absolutely i mean it does and especially what, what you've had in recent years is m more regional parties i mean so again the democratic unionists who've been the conservatives partner are a regional party they the only SNP. run in northern ireland the snp in scotland is very important right um and they're all about representing scottish interests i mean they've basically spent the last three and a half years yelling about brexit like every time when i when i show prime minister's questions in my intro to comparative class right inevitably Right. In in that in whatever session I show, the Scottish National Party leader gets up and talks about Brexit. Huh. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's done this like every time. Wow. Right. Uh, it's it's crazy. So, 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 yeah. So that does make it easier to pull that off to, than it would be in the U.S. system. So let me ask you one more question, Andy. Um, and that is, can we break down a difference in voters feelings in the U.K. about whether this election is really about Brexit or whether it's about the leadership of the Labour and Conservative parties. The Labour and Conservative parties both have pretty maligned leaders right yep. now. Yep. Uh, Boris That's Johnson fair. for the Conservatives yep. and uh, Jeremy Corbyn for the for, for yeah. Labour. Neither of these guys are going to win a lot of popularity contests. Right. Um, right. Is that playing a role or is this mostly just about the policies of Brexit? Uh, I mean, I think, I think they're intertwined a little bit. I mean, so I do think it's a lot of it is about Brexit. Like they... There's a sense that you can't really go back on that because they, they've sort of so committed the government to we're going to abide by the referendum results, right? And so, I mean, obviously there are people who would like to back off on that, but I don't think there's enough of them to actually revisit that. So if you're going to do it, then you got to get it done, and they've been struggling to get it done. So I do think in some ways this is a referendum on um, kind of who do we want to do that, and it's probably better to give the conservatives a majority and let them like actually take ownership of this and sure. do it, whatever that looks like, so that we can move past this drama. Um, I also think the leaders matter, and I think I think Corbyn really hurts Labor um, because I think Labor 
you could imagine a scenario in which they they are the ones that trusted with sort of carrying out Brexit. Um, but I think people really struggle to envision Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister. And um, the rank and file of the Labour Party, the kind of you know hardcore of that party, they like him. But he's kind of their Bernie Sanders, right? I mean, he's just kind of out there. Um, he's always been, he's been around for a long time, but he's always been kind of at the fringes of power until the, the regular people decided like, hey, he's great. Um, the party doesn't agree, much as our own Democratic Party here in the United States does not agree about Bernie Sanders, right, being a good, sure. a good candidate for that party. So I think, you know, people just really struggle to see him as potential prime minister material. So even though Boris Johnson is maligned, um, he's already prime minister. People can right. envision this much more easily. Um, and I think that that is helping um, the conservatives, even though, you know, it does feel a little like the, the 2016 election in the United States, where it's like people didn't like Donald Trump and they didn't like Hillary Clinton. And now what do you do? Right. Right. Maybe as a follow up to that. Um, I mean, so what complicates this is that Brexit is a cross-cutting issue, right? So you have conservatives who are both for and against Brexit. You have Mm -hmm. people in labor that are both for and against. And so so perhaps maybe since you're on a roll, you could sort of speak to um, how the election outcome could have an effect on what happens to Brexit from here on out, yep. um, and and how those how that cross cutting affects right. potential potential outcome. Well, and one of the things we've got going on right now is there's actually a Brexit party right running, um, and they're running in certain places, but not notably running against conservatives, right, and conservative incumbents, right. So they're trying to um, really take advantage of that exact cross cutting issue, right, and say let's make sure we get a government that is committed to Brexit and to to carrying this out. Um, but you're right, it's an interesting issue because it is what you know we like to call in fancy political science terms a cross-cutting cleavage, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. fit neatly within the existing party dynamics, right? Um, and, you know, certain regions are more against it than others, um, but, you know, even there, I mean, there are Scots who are in favor of Brexit, right? There are um, people in Northern Ireland in favor of Brexit, um, even though overall a majority of those um, do do oppose it. Um, so that, I think, too, creates an interesting dynamic. In 2016, when they, they had the Brexit vote, um, the, you know, b- both the leaders of the Labour Party, Corbyn at that time, and um, David Cameron, who was prime minister and the conservative leader, both ostensibly opposed um, sort of Brexit, although Corbyn was notably not very enthused. Right. So it matters not just um, which party gains seats, yep. but also which factions within those parties yep. right. gain or lose seats right. as well. So even right. if the conservatives yep. win an outright majority, that's not um, a blank check right. um, to Prime Minister Boris Johnson to do what he wants. Oh, right. Certainly Brexit, gets him right. So that's that. so that's something. I'm yeah. sorry. What? It certainly gets him closer to yeah. that. It does so, get him closer, yeah. but. That's something yeah. to keep in mind when right. you're watching election returns. It's still complicated because there are still people in the conservative party who have differing ideas mm-hmm. about how to carry out Brexit. And this right. is why Boris Johnson like tried to kick like 21 of them out of the party, basically, <laughs> right. um, which is kind of a weird move. But, um, you know, I think because you do have these very different visions of how do we carry out Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I was just add to that is like I think since Brexit, the Brexit vote, it has become much more the case that like the Labor Labor and the Liberal Democrats are more inclined to oppose this, right? Um, and it's become more the, like the government and led by the conservatives have taken more ownership of Brexit. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's more theirs right. to to deal with, right, for good or for ill. Um, but yeah, I mean I think absolutely there's there are a lot of rank and file labor voters who um, like it. There are rank and file conservative voters who think this is a terrible idea. So yeah. One more question about this. Uh, as we think about the United States uh, in contrast uh, mm-hmm. to the UK, and we uh, these are both incidences of the rise of populism and populist mm-hmm. nationalism. Right. Um, 
Is it fair to say that what's cross-cutting in this cleavage yeah. uh, in the vote is that on the one side, on the pro-Brexit side, this is being led by populist leaders, mm-hmm. much as Donald Trump and even Bernie Sanders yeah. share yeah. populist ideas in common. Absolutely. Um, in contrast, people like Hillary Clinton or right. Mitt Romney, right. who are not really fundamentally populists. Right. And this populist nationalism right. extends to other places, Viktor Orban in Hungary, mm-hmm. um, uh, and we could uh, rise up type Erdogan in Turkey. They're, they're, we're seeing a wave of populist nationalism mm-hmm. around the world. This is playing out in Brexit and it's playing out in the United States too. Yeah. In fact, I just um, taught a um, book in my senior seminar class this last semester, and I'll be teaching again this spring by Pippa Norris and Ronald Englehart on looking at kind of the rise of authoritarian populism. And two of the mm-hmm. case study chapters we read are on Trump's win in 2016 and Brexit in in Britain. Um, and they're pointing that out. I mean, like that this is being driven by kind of what the people want. But what the people want is not always very well thought out in terms of sort of what are the institutional implications of it. So, oh, we want more autonomy from Europe. That sounds good, right? But then you don't just easily kind of break those ties that you've been building for over half a century. Is there a simple answer or even a theoretical proposition for why we're seeing that rise right now? Um. That's a good question. I mean, why, why right now? Yeah. One of the common denominators, and I've not studied this closely, yep. is just a frustration with sort of established institutions mm-hmm. and established sort of politicians. Yeah. And you see that frustration uh, across the board, sort of a distrust in politicians of you um, that they are corrupt, that they've been um, they've been bought um, either by um, you know corporations mm-hmm. um, or other sorts of um, moneyed interests, whatever mm-hmm. those might be. Um, and just a frustration that these institutions have not done yep. things for the people um, yep. and are sort of detached from what the people want. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, like you can think about, it too, just this kind of this, this disillusionment with mm-hmm. how things were. I mean, like, so you get the, you know, the new Democrats in the 90s and the new labor yep. in the 90s. Um, we're supposed to be transforming. And they, there's a lot of hope early on. Right. And then. That fizzles, right, in a lot of ways. Um, you get the 9-11 in the United States, right, and we kind of come together. But that turns into this, like, bitter slog of we're in these wars that why are we there? What, you know, are these ill-advised increasingly? It seemed so. You get the the hope provoked by, like, a Barack Obama winning in 2008, and that's really exciting. But then doesn't really lead to the kind of systemic change that a lot of people were hoping for, right? And so, um, so then what do you do, right? And you kind of turn to these leaders who say, like, I'm going to fix it, and I'm from outside the system, I'm right. not part of those powerful right. people. But the problem is, like, you don't fix systems that way, right? You don't yeah. fix institutions. You have to, you know, kind of on a channel. Are you saying you can't drain the swamp by standing outside the swamp? You can't, right? And you know, certainly not by bringing in swamp creatures, right, to reference a previous EST episode, right? <laughs> Which is, uh, But, you know, it's, I think um, that's a re- it's a really problematic way of thinking about how do you accomplish change in politics, right? Good change in politics usually happens slowly. It happens incrementally, right? And mm-hmm. so I'm going to channel Edmund Burke here, right? But I think that's how usually you get things done. Um, trying to sweep things away usually just results in more messes right. um, mm-hmm. if you try to do it too quickly because you just, you know, you'll, you'll just destabilize it. And then it just is whoever happens to step into a power vacuum. And those are not usually the, the, the best folks. And it's especially hard to do that at the national level. I think what you've seen, at least in the United States over the past 30, 30 or 40 years is sort of the nationalization of of our politics, yeah, right? So everyone absolutely. puts their hopes and their fears yep. and their desires for change and their attempts right. to change at the right. federal level yep. because increasingly that's where some of the most important decisions are made. Yep. Um, and as these decisions keep getting pushed to the top, you these decisions are now being made um, 
by a very diverse group of people um, that right. represent the right. whole country, and there's just less room for uh, for a compromise yeah. uh, at that level. It's a lot easier to compromise, get things done, try different policies at a state and a local level, but all those decisions are being increasingly pushed to the top. And so, and because you do get that sort of disagreement and conflict mm-hmm. at the top, mm-hmm. the inability to get things done, um, these, you know, the swinging from mm-hmm. high expectations mm-hmm. to d- profound disappointments, as yeah. Andy referenced, yeah. people become increasingly disillusioned with national level politics and thus politics as a whole. And I think that's one of the reasons you have this this populist moment that we're having right now. Yeah. Although it's I interesting is that Britain's actually gone in the opposite direction. Right? They've actually mm-hmm. had more. I mean, they, they st- I think do still focus on the national, but there's actually more opportunity to make local decisions, right, in places like Northern mm-hmm. Ireland and Scotland than there were, say, 30 years ago. Right. Um, so that's a, you know, kind of interesting shift, but but they too are having a similar kind of dynamic. So. I guess I want to push back on you guys just a little bit here. Sure. We don't need to belabor this. <laughs> Labor. Uh. Uh, but uh, you've talked about public dissatisfaction, lack of public trust in, yep. in government, and I'm just not convinced those things are novel enough uh, or have accelerated enough in the short term to explain the rise of this national populist moment. Uh, let me go a step further. In the, United, in the American context, we've had one of our longest economic expansions mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In, in, in American history. Right. Right. And although there have been recent threats of a slowdown yeah. coming or a recession right, right. coming, we have not seen that yet. The jobs yep. numbers continue to look good. The economic right. forecast continues to, to hold on at least, to, yep. at least tendentially. Um, so we wouldn't predict we shouldn't pr- expect this huge wave of dissatisfaction with government people are doing better and even as Donald Trump appears to run for office he's trotting out those traditional Reagan tropes about sure, sure. uh you're better off now than you were 4 years ago right. and that's generally true yeah so why is uh why is populism happening now i don't have an answer for that but i don't think it's sufficient to say that just we've had this wave of of, of, of dissatisfaction with government. Government is very unpopular. Mm-hmm. Congress is mm-hmm. very unpopular. Mm-hmm. Trump is very unpopular. But yep. that doesn't explain yep. the rise of populism, I don't think. Well, I mean, and there's a couple other things you might think about here, too. I mean, one is, I think the, um, yes, we are prospering. But that that is a mixed bag, right? And it's a mixed <laughs> bag in this sense, mm-hmm. right? Because the problem is we're not all prospering at the same level, right? So for okay. a lot of us, most of us, really, right? Our, our situation has not actually improved all that much. I mean, Trump is going to try to make that case, and perhaps he'll sell it, although I, I expect this is going to end up being more about partisan identity than, any, than that, right? But, um, but you know, the reality is most of us are not all that much better off despite the fact that we've had been in this long period of growth, right? I mean, people – it is true that people are being able to get jobs at the certain levels where they weren't, but – but like incomes aren't rising, right? Except mm. for the very rich, right? And so that creates its own problems, right? When you when you have a certain improvement, but people feel like they're not getting that improvement. I think the other thing is like there's pockets of um, groups who are who are feeling particularly left behind, right? And so right. you can think about like the Trump, the kind of the white working class types, right? These people mm-hmm. in in kind of post-industrial places um, who are feeling like, wow, everything's going great for the country, but badly for us, right? And so that that seems to also be kind of fueling that kind of resentment. Um, and in, in the British case, I mean, you're getting that with some of the, um, the you know, the parts of Great Britain who are feeling left out, who are saying, mm-hmm. you know, we're, you know, yes, you know, there's this move being made, but it's being dominated by England, right? Um, and we are being, we're being left at the margins, right? So they're frustrated with that. And the English are frustrated because they're saying like, hey, we used to dominate the world and now we're being kind of increasingly under the shadow of Europe, right? And they get 
they're getting nervous about that. Um, so I don't know, but I, I agree. I mean, I, I don't think any of these like sort of in themselves simply explain. Yeah, it's it's a move. it's a complex, multifaceted problem. But I mean, as Andy, you know, said, you know, you don't have a. It's not like even half of the people in the United States are on board with a populist program. For example, right. it is it is less than that. And the people who are more likely to be on board with a sort of a populist program in either party are yep. more likely to be those people who are experiencing some sort of difficulty. And so maybe right. maybe they have a job versus not having a yep. job previously. Maybe their wages are up a little bit, but it's not merely, you have to look beyond simple um, you know, unemployment rate right. and wage increase. Right. You have to look at job security in the mm-hmm. sense that people actually right. will get to keep their job. Um, and a sense of how economically secure they are, not just um, their momentary sort of uh, economic status. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll I'll buy that for now. I do do think that there's... (laughs) We could could do a whole podcast. I do think there's something else. Well, I'll just say this. I I do think that there's uh, another process going on here by which some people who are feeling left behind have that feeling exacerbated by not necessarily economic conditions or rational conditions, but by a confluence of psychological factors, yep. social psychological factors, yep. even even influenced by the media. Right. And that I, is Norris and Inglehart's case. Is that this is, I mean, it's partly about economic, but it's also about cultural grievances, right? Yeah. I mean, that sense of being left behind. And or you can think about like Arlie Hochschild's, you know, sort of feeling like strangers in their own land, yes. right? Um, or the J.D. Vance hillbilly elegy. I mean, yep. that kind of argument. And I do think that's a big, big part of it, too. I'll, I'll that, buy that. Uh, and that's, I think, what we're getting at with like the Brexit vote. I mean, like what you're getting there is a lot of people feel like, I don't want to be that closely tied with Europe. I want to be British or, in the case of England, English. And the English right. are the ones driving this, by and large. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just economic politics. It's identity politics that's playing into the yep. No, I think that's absolutely yep. true. Yeah. Well, based on that, let's turn um, from the Atlantic uh, into our domestic. Huh. And um, I think it makes sense to break this up into our two constituent parties. Unlike the British, yep. where they have multiple parties to consider, we just have the Republicans and Democrats. Sorry, Green Party. Sorry, Libertarians. libertarians. Uh, we don't care. Um, <laughs> as political scientists, You're not going technically to speaking, we don't care. We find you fascinating. Yes. But anyway, um, let's let's talk about the Republicans <laughs> win first. Win some seats and we'll talk. <laughs> let's talk about the Republicans first and then we'll switch over to the Democrats. Sure. So the Republican uh, side of the election uh, process in the United States at this point is, of course, in one way, Entirely, entirely sewn up, despite right. uh, the whimsical campaigns of a couple people. Donald Trump is going to be the nominee, yeah. uh, barring some kind of um, death or uh, um, massive shift in the impeachment Mostly process. Um, and since we have nothing to say, yeah. Well, since we have yes. nothing to say usefully about his health, right. um, let's talk about the. It is great. It is really great. It's, I'm uh, sure all it is. the doctor's reports have been fantastic. He's in amazing health. I'm sure he is. Right. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the impeachment process. <laughs> they so, uh, Matt, where, does, where do we stand with impeachment right now? Where do we stand? Well, currently, I guess by the time this podcast is released, so today is Monday, December um, 9th. Oh, he's lifted the judiciary, the the judiciary committee. Well, the Judiciary Committee is meeting today on Monday um, to hear from legal counsel on sort of both sides of the impeachment question. And uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has made an announcement that the Judiciary Committee will be 
um, now that they've finished uh, with their public hearings and testimony, they will be drafting articles of impeachment. Right. The question yep. that remains is what articles of impeachment will they draft? Will they stick to a sort of a narrow strategy yep. of focusing solely on uh, the, uh, the Ukraine issue and perhaps um, throw in uh, an article of impeachment regarding the obstruction of justice, um, obstruction of the impeachment inquiry, right. um, or will they throw in something else, uh, such as some items from the Mueller report, which was mm-hmm. issued earlier this year, um, or right. perhaps um, something else, in, uh, something else, um, such as something related to, let's say, Donald Trump, Trump's uh, tax returns, yeah. Um, yeah. or the Stormy Daniels investigation. They could right. they could go far afield in the sorts of articles of impeachment that there they are a lot of together. options. Mm-hmm. So the question is, are they going to keep it narrow, or are they going to do more of a shotgun sort of um, approach to throw up as many things as possible? Because at this point, they know that Donald Trump is not going to be removed by the Senate. Right. You will not see 15 to 20 Republicans peeling off in the Senate to get the two-thirds majority. It's not going to happen. Well, never say never, right? But highly unlikely that enough Republicans will peel off in order for the Senate to come to a two-thirds majority vote required to remove President let, Donald Trump. Let right. me push on. I, I completely agree with you. But for hypothetical sake, what kinds of sequence of events could you most easily imagine would happen that would cause 15 to 20 Republicans in the Senate to defect and vote for removal from office? I mean, at this point, it would take some like very earth-shattering, very concrete evidence that there was a quid pro quo or some sort of equivalent Equivalent evidence that that Trump, you know, explicitly required Ukraine to investigate an investigation actually did start and some dirt was being dug up. I mean, it would take some something truly explosive beyond what we've seen. Ukrainian now. president handing Trump a giant bag with a dollar sign printed on the bag. Basically, okay. it, it would take because I yeah. mean, because the Republicans... One of the things that they've done is over the past, you know, couple of years, they say like, well, you know, if Trump wasn't doing X, Y, or Z, you know, if Trump goes this far, we would disagree with him. Um, but then it's found out that Trump actually does okay. do something, and then they sort of move the goalposts. So the reason I ask stuff. it that way is it's not possible, you think, that with the announcement of articles of impeachment, that the public might take that seriously in a way that they haven't before – Public say his popularity drops ten points, right? And then you start to see Republicans. I don't know because again, impeachment's been discussed so much over the past couple of years. And if you look yeah. at, if you look at, uh, for example, the five thirty eight um, impeachment polling tracker, which mm-hmm. aggregates all the polls on impeachment, and you look at, let's say, independents and uh, how they view impeachment, basically. Ever since the the initial news of the Ukraine yeah. story dropped, and once all that sort of settled. By sort of mid-October, what you saw is, and since mid-October for that past two months, basically, you've seen basically a flat line. You've not seen any increase in support amongst independents for right, right. impeaching and removing President right, Trump. Right. And maybe you'll get a few extra if impeachment actually yeah. does happen because yeah. some more people will start paying attention and there'll right. be something significant to him like, oh, he actually has been impeached now. But whether or not that significantly moves the needle at that point is is an open question. Okay. I, I have doubts it's going to do a whole lot. Okay, I, so. I Yeah, and I would go even further than you, I think, Matt, and say, like, I don't even think those things that you mentioned would matter. Like, if that Maybe happened, not. Maybe not. I'm, I, find, I think they basically say, well, okay, sure, he did that, but we still like the way Javi's doing as president, right? It's a it's a version, a, a kind of extreme version of the Democrats' argument in with Bill Clinton in 98-99, right? Which is like, yeah, he lied under oath. But he's doing a good job, so whatever. It doesn't really matter, right? And I think you you make that 
kind of case, right? And I think all the more so, right? I mean, if that happened with Clinton in 98, 99, right? And, and the Republicans stuck with Nixon for a long time, too, we mm-hmm. should remember, right? Um, this is all the more likely in a 2020, right? Because the reality yeah. of Clinton and Nixon is they were term limited out. There was nothing further they could do. They could not come back and run again. Um, you had a, a president of the party or a vice president of the party ready to take over. Um, there were actually some decent reasons why you might want to do that, right, from a political strategic point of view. But, you know, to abandon Trump in an election year, like Republicans are just going to see this as a political poison, right? And they're sure. and they're probably right about that, regardless of the kind of merits of the case um, for for impeachment. So I think, I mean, I would say, I, I don't think there's any chance of it actually happening, really, um, the Senate removing him. But what would, it, what would it take? I would say more Trump goes nuts, right? And that maybe that could mean literally nuts, but it could also mean... Like Mad King George kind like, of thing? Yeah, he, well, yeah, there's the Mad King George option, but there's also the he turns into some other version of himself, right? And there have been multiple versions of himself politically, right? Where all of a sudden he starts becoming, turning into this kind of weird moderate, right? Who just starts doing things that are just unacceptable to the Republican base. Mm. And then they start thinking like, ooh, wouldn't a bland Mike Pence, who's a pretty reliable conservative, be sure. um, be a good idea? There's nothing to suggest that Trump is thinking about moving But all that would have to happen within the next month. And it would have to happen like in short order where all of a sudden he just starts doing cra- crazy stuff. Yeah, again, totally. Essentially a mental breakdown. Yeah, I really think it would have to be a mental breakdown. I mean, I think a mental yeah. breakdown would be then they start thinking about it. And even then, I'm not sure they do it. <laughs> Can I can I um, try to out cynic you guys? I'm not good yeah. at this because I'm an Please. optimist, and so I'm not. I feel like I was pretty cynical, so I wanted to see. Yeah, here's, here's my out cynic. Have we um, through? I'm thinking about Clinton and and Trump. Have we essentially ruined the tool of impeachment as a as a legitimate political tool? Let me explain what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. The Johnson case is too far back in history to be politically relevant um, to average Americans. Yeah, yeah. Nixon stands on his own. Nixon absolutely was the proper functioning of the impeachment process. Had he stayed in office, he would have been impeached. He right. would have been removed. That's the way the system ought to yep. work. Yep. Uh, Clinton was impeached on, depending on your point of view, uh, solid or more specious grounds. Right. Right. But his party supported more him. Or technical view- grounds. Technical maybe. grounds. Yeah. But, uh, but his party supported him, made the case that you said, basically, yeah. that was, well, technically he did lie under oath, but are we really going to remove the president for lying under oath uh, over this issue of this, you know, this this uh, what seemed to be a consensual affair? Um, yep. We can yep. talk about that. But anyway, at any rate, and now because the Democrats essentially stood behind Clinton under right. his impeachment, that gives the Republicans cover to stand right. behind Trump under his impeachment. Yep. And if we go through a round of both parties standing by their man, uh, yep. to quote uh, Tanya Tucker, mm-hmm. are we now at a point where – it, that that any future impeachments play out according to this this model, and we we shouldn't expect anybody to get removed via impeachment. Yeah, I actually think possibly probably. yeah because it would break down completely along party lines. Yeah, because right. now because now to to get impeached you don't have to have bipartisan support for removal, right? And this is something that yeah. this is something that Alexander Hamilton warned against um, in Federal right. sixty five. Is he actually said that? The impeachment power is supposed to be limited for cases of, you know, of actually, you know, real corruption yeah. or, or the you know, abuse of power. And the danger is that if that question becomes open for debate, then right. basically people are going to align on either side according to factions, right? right. And it's yep. simply be going yep. to become a partisan exercise. Right. And, and the power of impeachment becomes, becomes useless in the yep. long run. So. So, yeah, I, I think the institution of impeachment, which is an important institution in our Constitution, has been damaged. Right. Yeah. 
by both sides. And I think, so. yeah, and I think, I mean, in some ways we've laid the groundwork for this down through history because we've made it very hard to do. Right. I mean, people, people have always been reluctant. And so there have been presidents who you can make other, you know, you can make cases for other presidents who maybe should have been, um, you should have been considered impeaching. And oh, yeah. it was just always seen too, no, that's too strong a measure. We're not going to do that, right? right. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, in many ways, like the, the kind of these parallel events are... I think in some ways maybe it makes it more likely to use it as a political tool to embarrass a president, right? As, mm-hmm. as right. you know, the Republicans are saying the Democrats are doing right now, right? Um, it, but I think it also makes it more less likely that you can remove, unless of course you had a two-thirds party major, partisan majority right. in the Senate. But boy, it doesn't seem like that's likely to happen. Right, impeachment just Senate. becomes um, a campaign tool, yep. basically. Yep. Well, yep. that's disheartening. Yep. Um, I agree. That's because <laughs> there might be times in which a president really does need to be removed. Sure. Right. Um, and you can make that, a case now is one of those times. Right, that right? option is going to be, you know, pulled but, off the table. But right, it's right. not. Like, no one really seems to be thinking about the merits of should we remove this president. People aren't thinking as, I'm a member of the Congress, right? They're thinking more of, I'm a member of this party. Right. Um, and I think that, that to me is a very, very disturbing reality because the Congress has a responsibility to hold the executive branch accountable. And they are only willing to do that if they are of the opposite party. And and it only really works if some of the president's own party, um, you know, is willing to do that. I mean, my you know my the story I always think of with the Nixon one is Barry Goldwater rock, yeah. walking in and telling him, "You don't have the votes. I think you maybe have ten to twelve votes. I don't think I'm one of them." Right, mm-hmm. and that's the final kind of nail in the coffin for Nixon, where he has to leave because. Oh, you know, the guy who was the presidential nominee of this party, the kind of leader of many people's minds of the conservatives of the party, right? He is saying, I'm done with you, right? Um, Even though you're my my president from my party. Um, And I I just can't see any legislative leaders really doing that right now. And I'd love to be proven wrong. But yeah, I don't see right. It. Which I mean, there were enough Republicans yeah. that eventually did come out yeah. and oppose yeah. Nixon, which right. is you know the right. the impeachment as, right. as an institution, right? That was something yeah. that people were taking yeah. more seriously back then, right? But, but now, but now, most of the people in Congress on either side are not acting yep. in good faith. I would yeah. say. Hmm. Well, if that's where we're left with the presidency, that's where we're left with Congress. Uh, Supreme Court's not doing anything really worth talking about right now. Let's turn to the Democratic side of the presidential <laughs> process. Um, Kamala Harris has dropped down. Kamala Harris is gone. Um, and Josie uh, Stack. Josie Stack. Um, one of those names probably a little bit more notable or than the other. Steve Bullock, too. Uh, yes. We barely knew ye. Literally, oh, yes. we barely knew ye. Yeah. Um, I saw a, a, an advertisement for Michael Bloomberg when I was watching sure college did. football <laughs> over the weekend. That yeah. was entertaining. I have so far been able to miss seeing advertisement from Michael, Michael Bloomberg. I see I'm them excited. a lot, and I don't watch much TV, but I feel like like they're on. But Andy, you don't really watch I don't watch TV. He'll get me online. But yeah. yeah, yeah, that was one of my Facebook feed. But, oh, nice. Oh, my um, can we talk about that? Why is Bloomberg all of a sudden being the name we see the most in terms of advertisement? Because he literally has spent more in advertising since he entered the race um, than all the other candidates combined. And that's impressive when you consider <laughs> the number of candidates who are <laughs> in the race. Making a splash. He is. Serious I mean, he's got $53 billion in personal funding. He's 77 years old, so there's not a lot to save it for for later. Um, so he's going <laughs> to drop money. <laughs> oh, that got dark. Yeah. Okay. Well, Make I mean, he, he's old. <laughs> like, let's just be honest. This guy's old. He's decided he wants to spend some of it on a vanity campaign for president. And we'll see if he can turn into more than a vanity well, campaign. Billionaire, why not? What um, 
is Bloomberg's strategy? <laughs> oh. Most excellent question. No, no, I'm, I'm serious. I like, mean, like, okay, I mean, if you guys want to say it, I mean, I'll say it. It's I, pretty I, straightforward, right? He's, yeah. He's going to spend a lot of money. He's skipping the first he's four. He's going to ignore the first couple primaries. Right. The uh, first four, I think, right? Which has never right. worked. It has literally never worked, so he's trying to. But he also has a money. lot of money, right? And no one um, ever had fifty-three billion to pump in right. either. So what he's hoping to do is build um, popular support and ignore and basically, you know, seed the first four primaries, yep. and then do really well in large states um, on yep. Super Tuesday when yep. a lot of delegates are awarded, and basically yep. come from out of nowhere to become. Uh, essentially, he's trumping in one swell foop to become the presumptive nominee. Yep. I should mention, I mean one fell swoop, but my family consistently says one swell foop. And I, that works, too. It's just something yeah. I've learned. Yeah. Well, that'll be the kind of reality we're in if, if Michael Bloomberg can pull off the strategy. I mean, I think what it, what it, if we're going to make a case for his strategy for a second, which I think is kind of a weird strategy. But, again, he has more money than anybody else we've ever seen try to pull something like this off. Um, his His theory of the case, I think, is you hope that you get multiple winners in those first four. None of them sure. will be him, right? But but you get multiple winners in those first Buttigieg four. Buttigieg wins Iowa. Buttigieg Sanders wins something. Wins New Hampshire. Sanders wins. Ideally, you know, or even better Biden yet. Biden wins South Carolina. Or better yet, Sanders wins Iowa and New Hampshire, something like that, right? And then Biden wins South Carolina, and then maybe Buttigieg or Warren wins Nevada or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you get a couple Sanders victories where Sanders is the most – well positioned coming out of there, but not great position, positioning. Nobody, the party elites don't like Sanders. It is pretty clear that, you know, Biden and Warren are struggling. They're still wondering about, you know, do we really want the 37 year old mayor of South Bend, Indiana? And then you get Bloomberg, right? And it's like, wow, this guy is, you know, he's clearly got more experience than this Bougie's character. He's more, you know, acceptable to the establishment um, than a Sanders. And maybe, maybe then he has a shot. He's unbelievably even richer than than Yang. Yeah, right. I mean, so the, but the thing is, like, even then, like, he's still like this really old, rich white guy who used to be a Republican, and I'm still thinking, like, I still feel like they end up going with Buttigieg or Biden in that scenario. Yeah, I but, mean, he could win because he's but, he's more moderate. And he might be perceived as being able to beat yeah. Donald Trump at his own game, but but I mean, Bloomberg represents represents an extremely small slice of sort of the Democratic electorate, right? I mean, not only sort of demographically, like as far as age or, you know, race, he is an old white guy, right? But but also his politics, right? So he represents a relatively economically conservative and socially liberal wing of the Democratic Party. But the Democratic Party as a whole is, you know, actually not super socially liberal. They're actually right. more socially sort of moderate or even conservative in some pockets, especially in middle America. Mm-hmm. But they do like more liberal community. they do like more liberal economic policies. Mm-hmm. But he's a little bit more conservative on that. And so he's gonna have to rebrand himself um, to be something completely yeah. different. And he's got a lot of baggage too, like his yeah. His tough on crime policies in New York yeah. City, um, his sort of um, you know anti soda, big gulp soda. Yep. Yep. So he represents the nanny state right. in some ways. That's not going to fly in Middle America very well. There's right. plenty of those states in Super Tuesday. So he's got he's got a lot of obstacles I mean, to overcome. Yeah, to, to me the way he makes it work is he somehow persuades the African American vote to go for him instead of for Biden. And for the reasons Matt just outlined, I just not don't happen. see that yeah. fit. I don't, I mean, like, I don't know how much money you can, you can spend tons and tons of money, but I just don't know how you persuade that community that you are something other than who you are. And who you are is clearly not what they would normally be looking for. I think that's fair. Um, I think it's unlikely to think of uh, Bloomberg as a potential winner 
of the Democratic nomination, but he's a potential spoiler in the sense that he might throw off strategies of other yes. candidates. Yes, I think that's true. So who is he going to spoil? If he's most I, I think Biden probably um, is Which most is, likely yeah. to be affected by uh, whatever Bloomberg does. Which is weird, right? Because then I think I'm guessing Bloomberg would prefer Biden to some of those other people. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah. So could we have our dream of a brokered convention? Probably not. No. So he would spoil Biden in that he would peel off some of the moderates. I want it so bad. Yeah, I think not because so. he would peel off the Afri- African right, right. exactly. No, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And the African American vote, like that, is a huge factor, especially on Super Tuesday with all the Southern states. Right? Yep. I mean, and I'm just really curious, like if if not Biden, then where? Right. Um, a lot of them are supporting are supporting another, Biden right now. But another way it could affect it, I, I'm wondering, and I'm not a campaign expert here, but if Bloomberg, one of the things he has, we we've talked about, is his money. And if other candidates are playing the expectations game of I have to do at least as well as blank yep. in this state to stay in the race, I have to be in the top three um, to stay in the you know to stay in the race right. in after right. New Hampshire or something like that. Yep. It might force them to spend more of their war chest earlier than they wanted to. Yeah. to make yeah. sure that that happens, yeah. and yeah. it could. Um, yep, it, it it could be a problem. Yeah. Well, guys, um, we're running short on time here. We uh, we've got to head off to our next uh, our next items. So um, I'm going to save our, our our Christmas wishes for our next um, our next episode. Hopefully, we can record again right before uh, before the break. Be, uh, be thinking about what's on your Christmas list, guys. All right, I'll get you something nice. <laughs> on behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, you've been listening to Election Shock Therapy. You can always get in touch with us at Election Shock or uh, Election Shock Therapy at gmail.com. Um, and until we hear from us again, go Royals. 